0: Hello, and welcome to the Classicist Podcast from the Hoover Institution. I'm your host, Troy Sinek, here, of course, with Victor Davis Hansen, the Martin and Ely Anderson Senior Fellow at the Hoover Institution. And, Victor, I want to turn today to a piece of yours that caught my eye recently entitled The Myth of Progress. And, sort of, superficially, this is an analysis of political rhetoric, but it really gets to some deeper issues of political philosophy. This is a look at some of the language that we hear from the left, all of which conveys a certain sense of predetermination. Settled science, that's one that we hear most often, of course, in regards to global warming. What is it that bothers you about that phrase?
1: Well, I don't think science is ever really quite settled unless weight or it's a prime number. Um, If we had this conversation 20 years ago and we were discussing ulcers, we would probably say it was from stress, not from a particular type of bacteria. And uh, we may not find that the bacteria is the prime catalyst for ulcers in 10 years. So science is always changing. And unfortunately, the consensus usually goes against people like Galileo or Darwin or Einstein. So when the president says the science on global warming is settled because X percentage of contemporary climatologists agree with me and t- to disagree with that is heretical it's just crazy he's the one that's anti-science science is a fluid mechanism and it 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 doesn't run by consensus and i pointed out in the piece in my field probably the three great contributions of the late 19th and 20th century were heinrich schliemann's a theory that there was a Troy and there was a Mycenae and they had they weren't just mythological out of Homer's Iliad and Odyssey and Michael Ventris's pr- proof that Mycenaean linear B script was not some Phoenician or Semitic script, but it was actually Greek, even though it didn't look like the alphabetic gamma alphabet we knew. It was an earlier form. And then finally Milman Perry's proof, I think, that the Iliad and the Odyssey were not read off a script or they weren't composed some notes, but rather they were done through a, something he called oral poetry, the Bard's ability to remember large chunks of uh, poetry by by memory and by for, uh, oral formula. So those are just three examples in, in a very esoteric field like classics. But the presence tries to use this predetermined pseudoscientific Uh, cachet as if everybody who disagrees with them is on the wrong side of history, which is another term that I mentioned in the piece.
0: Yeah, and you point out in regards to those um, studies of classics in the the piece that what those three uh, discoveries all had in common is that they came from sort of iconoclastic sources, right? I mean, this was really sort of cutting against what the prevailing wisdom was.
1: Yeah, they did, and Um, The prevailing wisdom right now in climatology is if you were going to argue that there is a man-caused heating of the planet and this is unique in a way that we have never seen before and that it has deleterious consequences and those deleterious consequences can be avoided by radical growth in government to curb particular types of activity – then you're going to get grants, you're going to get media exposure, you're going to get academic preference appointments, tenure. And if you're not and you're going to uh, you know, oppose all that or think in a different way, you're going to get sued <laughs> by a state attorney general in some cases, or you're going to be brought up by a congressman uh, to testify as a heretic. So...
0: You mentioned a moment ago another one of these phrases: the right side of history, or, or conversely, the wrong side of history. That's a locution that has a bit of historical baggage associated with it. To walk us through that notion,
1: well, Karl Marx believed that, um, and by extension, his uh, followers, especially Joseph Stalin and, and Lenin, believed that uh, their history had a predetermined course and the predetermined course was to give power and justice and fairness and equality and fraternity to this proverbial people. And that all history was basically a story of class struggle which would resolve itself in the end by the destruction of wealthy people, private property and capitalism. And that's what predeterminism – and it goes back to even uh, Hegel – Nietzsche, the German, and Oswald Spengler, that there was a predetermined march through time, march through history, which is another Marxist term. So when the president takes a position on a controversial issue, whether it's diversity or whether it's the Keystone Pipeline or whether it's global warming, he always says, I'm on the right side of history, as if He's some type of German predeterminist historian. He doesn't realize that most of their theories and most of what they said has not proved to be true. H- history's not little steps into a glorious uh, stairwell of equality. It's cyclical. And as I pointed out, life in Europe in 800 A.D. was much worse than it was in 150 A.D., And people in 150 A.D. probably could have said with some justification they were on the right side of history as far as science, technology, government. But that didn't seem to last very long. And by 800, things were crazy. It was medieval. The standard of living, the material circumstances under which people lived had regressed 800 years. So we don't know really where we're going to be in the future. All we know is that humans are constant and their behavior is predictable but to be a predeterminist as obama is he thinks that with enough money and good intentions he can he can find people malleable and he can change their nature to think in a predetermined fashion and ultimately when this is all verbiage when we say predetermined fashion we mean basically an equality of result uh, society
0: another quotation that the president is fond of so much so that i believe it's on his uh, his rug in the oval office is the line that he attributes to Martin Luther King. It actually has a somewhat more complicated pedigree than that. But this sentiment that the arc of the moral universe is long, but it bends towards justice.
1: What do you make of that sentiment, Victor? I just don't – I wish it were true, but uh, I don't think that even the Aztecs who were mass murderers par excellence had ever figured out something like Auschwitz. And it took IG Farben Company, the most sophisticated scientific enterprise in the history of civilization, and Tolfen Sons, one of the most sophisticated uh, engineering firms in German Germany, to figure out how to liquidate and dispose of six million people. And this happened basically from 1942 to 19 uh, early 1945, and. So the arc of history is not necessarily going to bend any particular way toward justice. If you were on the, gates of the, the if you were on the gates of Armageddon walking into a, a gas chamber in, in um, Auschwitz, you would have 1450 rather than 1944. I know that I would much rather have lived uh, in Rwanda 100 years ago than I would 10 years ago or 15 years ago. And I think all of us would not have wanted to live in Cambodia in 1975. We would have preferred 1830, much safer. So I I don't see in history that there's any arc. And what the president means is that ultimately people are going to be uh, very, very liberal and progressive and utopian. And we're all headed in that direction. But when I look at the UN, the utopian expression – uh, the locus classicus for this, I and I look at the membership of the UN, I, I see something right out of the medieval world.
0: Right. And as I said at the top, the, the common thread through all of these is a, a very modern, very Western one. It's a, it's a little bit techno-optimist. It's a little bit end of history. It's this idea that things are getting better all the time. We are self-evidently superior or at least more enlightened than our forebears, and and progress is essentially inevitable. What are the liabilities, Victor, that accompany thinking that way?
1: Well, you can see it with the president. He's sort of got a smugness, Ben Rhodes, Jonathan Gruber, his advisors. Uh, So when he reduces ISIS, which is – a I guess, a Neanderthal organization. He says, you know, around here we'd like to use the metaphor that just because they put on the Lakers uniform, they're not Kobe Bryant, haha. Or when he refers to LeBron James or JVs, et cetera, et cetera. And then we turn the channel and we see people being crucified or being burned alive or being drowned in cages. And we think, what society in history could figure out such a device, a diverse way of torturing and executing people, and very few could. And so I think the problem is that we've confused technological progress and material progress with ethical and moral progress. And even technological progress is not linear. We could, I mean, Hollywood has made a billion dollar industry on zombie movies and Road Warrior movies that suggest that we could all go up and smoke with one nuclear exchange or global their, their idea of global warming whatever it is but ethically i don't think that we could make the argument that we've ethically progressed uh, much since the greeks i i don't see it uh, when i look at american society in general and when i i have i have a kind of an advantage because i live in a house where my great great grandmother lived and i have diaries and i have the oral tradition that i, I kept alive from my grandfather who knew knew his grandmother and when i look at my life in that house and their life, I can say, wow, I I survived an appendix that ruptured and they didn't, or I had an impacted kidney stone and survived and they didn't. And so it's getting better and I have an indoor toilet. It's getting better. But then I say to myself, wait a minute, I have locks all over my doors. I have people that try to break in at night. I have people who throw dead animals on the lawn. I have people who violate the law that live across the street. They didn't have any of that. And so I asked myself, wow, did technological progress result in moral regress? Some cases it does. I don't think anybody believes Silicon Valley, the masters of the universe. If we look at just this week's this week's news, Theranos, the blood uh, sampling company, basically lied on a billion dollar swindle. And when we look at Facebook, they basically massage their uh, daily news accounts to reflect a liberal bias. And these are supposed to be the most enlightened, sophisticated, technologically savvy people. And they're they're morally vacuous.
0: How would people in the classical world regard this modern notion of of progress that we have as sort of inevitable?
1: Well – you can argue that because they didn't not ha- they had not mastered the internal combustion engine or sophisticated uh, phys- physiology or physics or mechanical engineering in our way that they didn't really believe that materially each year would get better, so they were more open minded about reversals because they saw material reversals, but in their way of looking at the world the uh, Human body was the metaphor that they, they they like to look. People are young; they go through adolescence, they become adults, seven stages according to the poet and philosopher and politician Solon, and then they die. So when when we're all eighty or eighty five, we're going to look basically like we did when we're one or two. We're going to be in diapers, perhaps. We're not going to be able to talk very well. We're going to be feeble and dependent on. Uh, healthy people. And that's a natural progression that cities and states and nations go on, uh, go through themselves. And we, we discount that because we're in the present. But when we look at Byzantium or we look at the Ottoman Empire or the Aztec Empire, it's very hard to see any particular civilization that would prove us right and the ancients wrong about their, uh, their cyclical maturity and, and oblivion and then rebirth.
0: Last thing that I'll ask you, are there exceptions to the dominant norms today in the West? Are there certain lifestyles that people can live or or lines of work that they can engage them that lead them to a a better understanding of the cyclical nature of things or the the tragic understanding of history?
1: I think so. I think people who uh, are physical – And it doesn't mean that they have to be physical in the natural context of farming, but somebody who drives a a semi-truck or somebody who works at a lathe, they understand that their degree of uh, viability depends on muscular strength, their own health. They know that if they don't have really sick leave, if they can't get in the truck and go to Iowa tomorrow because uh, they've got a colon problem, They're not going to get paid. So they have a very realistic view of the world. And the view that they have is that it's very tenuous, unpredictable, rather savage and cruel. And yet the modern state has created millions of Americans that just assume that because they were promised a particular pension figure – that they don't really care whether that's viable or not they want that or because they're at the dmv they expect to go to work every morning go home at a particular time and whether or not they process uh, car licensing very effectively doesn't matter so we still have these tragic people that are not plugged into the therapeutic big government big corporation uh, system but i i think they're vanishing and it's reflected in the popular culture
0: all right That's all the time that we have for today. Join us next week for the next installment of the Classicist's Podcast. And in the meantime, you can stop by hoover.org to read all of Professor Hansen's commentary. We'll see you back here soon. For Victor Davis Hansen and the Hoover Institution, I'm Troy Sinek. Thanks for listening. This podcast has been a production of the Hoover Institution. For more information about our work, please visit hoover.org.